Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Charles Eisenstein here with the outrageous and brilliant Severin von Tarscher Fleming. We're going to talk about the Agrarian Trust. You were telling me, what is the Agrarian Trust? I'll just say, like, when people ask me, what's the best thing, the most impactful thing that I can do with money? I mean, I kind of don't like universal questions like that because the answer is different for everybody. But I say, okay, if you're forcing me to give you an answer, I would say to protect and regenerate soil, water, land, biodiversity. And that ultimately comes down to an intimate relationship with a piece of land. And what if your calling in life isn't to come into intimate relationship with a piece of land? Well, then you have to come into intimate relationship with a person who is in intimate relationship with a piece of land and support them financially. And you can do that if you know an aspiring young farmer. But what if you have a billion dollars and you would like to support a thousand aspiring young farmers. What a great problem to have. What a great problem to have. <laughs> if that's your problem, Severin may have the answer. So Agrarian Trust was also founded here on this ranch and its mission is to support the life of the land and to emancipate land out of a commodity framework and into a commons, which sounds too good to be true on some level, but basically we constructed a, 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 legal, a legal container and a cultural container that can hold the land for sustainable agriculture in perpetuity, giving the farmers secure tenure, life leases on the land at affordable rate, protection, and mandates high levels of stewardship. So land is purchased into the trust, it is held by the trust, it is leased to the farmer. It is farmed organically for local food sovereignty in perpetuity. It is stewarded. It is cared for. It is loved. It is essentially emancipated from the commodity structure, which, as we all know, land is a gift from the creator. Land, although it is bought and sold, according to most of our deep thinkers on this topic, shouldn't be bought and sold. And anyway, it, we can't afford to buy and sell it. We... Those of us who are who are motivated to farm are most often not able to pay what it costs to buy or finance from the revenues that we are able to earn through organic agriculture. Right, unless unless you're, in, I mean, there are ways to make pretty good money in organic agriculture. You were calling it the baby lettuce to rich person pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you can cash flow, and you can cash flow things nicely. I mean. We see such a, a huge movement of young people into vegetable production 
for a large reason that is because vegetables are the most charismatic and high vitamin, you know, way to interact with food as compared to, you know, large scale ranching or land restoration or agroforestry or upland management, which would require much, you know, much bigger tools, much more money. Yeah. You can grow veggies on a little rented patch for a few thousand dollars worth of tools and you can start cash flowing a little business that after 15 years can grow to be 300 acres of organic farming. Mm-hmm. And that's really the story of so many of our leaders in the Young Farmers Movement has been starting on an acre and a half and a handshake with a tiny tool shed and, you know, working their way up to, to tractors and field scale and trucking bulk veggies into the food bank and to the to farmers markets, et cetera. But that really is not all the work that needs to be done. And so enabling... Yeah, we need to grow staples on uh, in a way that heals land. Right. There's... The work of land restoration requires security of tenure. Mm-hmm. And like as we look out on this landscape now and we see that these hills have been degraded by thousands, by not thousands, hundreds of years only of sheep and burning and, and fire and the reduction in forest cover on the ridge lines and the erosion of gullies and the siltation of the waterways, you know, and the, and the destruction and oxidization of soil carbon, you see that on the scale of work that is required, requires people not to have to be fussing and striving to cash flow their mortgage. Right. Um, and so if you are in the position and you are qualified, having done the training to farm, really, we need you to be farming. And so this, you know, a lot of people would bristle at the idea of returning land to the commons because... It's like, well, what if I put all this hard work into my land and I grow fruit trees and I do all this beautiful stuff and then the, you know, communist commissar comes and takes it away from me. So this is not what you're describing. Right. So the legal structure that we built for Agrarian Trust and the cultural structure that we built for Agrarian Trust came through a massively uh, complex constellation and choreography of stakeholders who are, you know, approaching this issue from from every angle. Land conservationists, young farmers, retiring farmers, social investors, ag economists, rural historians, like all of the voices who have observed this great inflection of land ownership that's going on right now in the country and the crisis of access for the incoming generation, such that the old ones can't get out without selling, the young ones can't get in without buying, um, but they can't afford to buy. And so it's actually mm-hmm. 70% of American farmland is owned by people over 65 in this country. And so that dilemma has motivated tremendous amount of, of consternation and, all, and friction, but also innovation and, um, and openness because everyone openly acknowledges, well, we're going to have to find a different way forward than Little House on the Prairie, you know, with traditional purchasing. So the legal and cultural structures that we created in partnership with our amazing lawyers um, at the Sustainable Economies Law Center in Oakland, who focus on cooperatives and um, structures for the new economy, governing structures, is it's kind of like a reinvention of the 50 of the community land trust model. Mm-hmm. And the community land trust model is called a 501c3 and 501c2. So it's essentially a nonprofit land holding entity that's controlled by a govern and governed by a nonprofit organization. So we're able to receive gifts of land. We're able to receive gifts of money. Uh, you know, we're able to give donation benefit, like tax benefit. And then we're able to construct um, governance boards that are 
really holistic and um, polycentric um, along the principles described by Eleanor Orstrom in her study of functional commons around the world, mm-hmm. um, such that you have nesting nesting bodies of governance to describe and confine and constrain and authorize and hold the land um, and hold those who are on the land accountable to the highest stewardship missions. I, I mean, I think I understand what you're talking about, but uh-huh. it might help to illustrate with a, with a story or something because. Okay. Yeah. Like, like what kind of farmer, what kind of like awesome, innovative, young, energetic farmer who has great ideas and is going to really benefit society and land and who maybe couldn't like did everything right, but still couldn't quote make it in the commodity agriculture system we have today. And like, how can they benefit? Like what's right. And, and of course the question that we were all talking about is it's just going to keep getting worse in terms of the, the larger structural antagonism towards Mm -hmm. small and family scale and organic agriculture. Um, as our regulatory and food policy structures become more and more hostile to the way that yeah. that we want to see the land farmed and the way the land wants to be farmed and what the land really deserves. So, you know, I'm thinking about a farm in New Hampshire that leased land, built up a fabulous multidimensional CSA with cows, with beef, with pigs, with grains, with veggies on farm processing, you know, farm store, CSA, farmer's markets, you know, thousands of loyal, delighted, beloved community. And poof, lost their lease. Mm -hmm. Wow. But they are such excellent and incredible, productive, visionary farmers. So, well, the community got together and helped do financing for the purchase of a big, nice piece of flat, gorgeous farmland. Well, it turns out that nice, big, gorgeous piece of farmland had been used for sod farming and was degraded and compacted and required a heck of a lot of restoration and renovation and resuscitation into life, right? So they go and they thrall, you know, they thrash their, their arms against the universe and they make a whole new farm. Mm-hmm. And it's bumping and there's, you know, again, chickens and pigs and cows and everybody... But there's just no way that they can, even with the community financing, pay for the mortgage, as well as the capitalization, all the tools, all the infrastructure, all the barns, all the heating, all the cooling, all the trucking, to grow all this affordable, nutritious food for their food shed and pay for the land. Because basically, they still had to go through the conventional banking system at some point? Well, it wasn't get... it wasn't that conventional a banking system, well, but it still has... They're still paying interest to somebody. They're still paying interest to, what, to somebody. To what, to the community that raised the money? or To the community that raised the money, to the community uh-huh. loan fund, yeah. I see. And so it's, you know, it's mostly just that they're on two and a half million dollars of land. Right. Right. And that, you know, many people who inherit land, they never had to pay that, and they're, they're struggling to pay their to pay for their house, to pay for mm-hmm. the, or to pay for their schooling of their kids, mm-hmm. and they're having their wife work off the farm. So the kind of average farmer in the country, you know, the average Joe story would be, I inherited my land. I have had already, I had already some capitalization on it of equipment and tractors, and my wife or partner works off the farm for health insurance right. and for con- continuity of you know money through the year. Mm-hmm. And so you know, enter in somebody new or somebody trying to restore land or somebody trying to instigate a new and you know profoundly more diverse system with more equipment and more capital needs and you just see how taking the land out of it 
enable so much because th- that family I described they don't need to own the land that's not important to them they just need to have secure tenure to it they're right. happy for the community to own the land the community that they sell mm-hmm. to the community to whom they are accountable the community who drinks the water from the watershed you know that is a beloved community who are perfectly able to steward that land so by secure tenure, you mean that they could even pass it on to their kids or to somebody else, as long as they continue to abide by the mission statement or whatever of the agrarian trust, so that they're, they're you know, not farming it with chemicals. Is that enough, or do they have to be actively healing or proving the land? Like, like I mean, my brother farms, he's organic, um, but and he's trying and, and making some progress but still very much in the world of you know tractors and plastic row cover and people don't know how much of organic vegetable agriculture especially depends on plastic row cover and and it's not that he's you know evil and loves plastic i mean it's that he's got he's a mortgage constrained. to pay yeah he's yeah. constrained by the market conditions yeah so 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 um well, this movement to hold farmland in common to make it accessible for food security is actually an international movement, and it was pioneered by a group in France called Terre du Lien, replicated in Germany, replicated in Belgium. Um, there's groups now in Australia even who are working on this. So this model of co- cooperatively community-held land that is leased out on a permanent basis to the farmers is well underway, and the ones in Belgium actually they describe it as like a software agreement mm-hmm. you know that you using the software you you know agree right. to abide by these operating rules i.e I, I you know you no longer have the right to degrade or destroy the land you cannot mine gravel you cannot mine topsoil and export it yeah you know you are not you're not um those rights have been removed you can't develop it yeah. forever that that's the traditional conservation easement so we have also the traditional conservation easement but then there's also proactive easements i.e a forestation that is then also supported by um, community financing, you know, hedgerows, watershed ma- management and maintenance, you know, essentially upping the biological health of the land. And one of the things that they did in France um, that was quite tactical is they took on more degraded properties, mm-hmm. you know, or with houses that were falling down mm-hmm. because you can, you know, you can buy more marginal land and for cheaper. <laughs> right. And then you can make a really big difference. You can also take a farm that used to be, you know, a two million dollar, say, hundred cow dairy that supported basically one guy and a part time helper, and the wife worked off the farm. And and on that same land base, if you build a few more housing structures, you can have a raw milk dairy, a, you know, three greenhouses producing greens all winter, a hay operation, a summer camp, a, a wood fired bread oven, you know, at a pizza night once a week. And, you know, somebody who who makes an herb garden and does teas. Like, you can all of a sudden have multi-enterprise, more complex, more dynamic types of farms inhabiting that same footprint, making way more money per acre, and just, you know, yeah, accelerating and even, life. And even making more food per acre, too. It's not... I mean, this is one of the things that I keep running into among less informed people. They say, well, this is, you know, nice to indulge rich people's uh, fetish for ecological, sustainable food, but come on, Charles, we got to feed the world here, and there's no other way to do it except with high-tech industrial chemical agriculture and gen- genetic engineering. 
So isn't that amazing that that argument has become so normative? Yeah. There's a, I, you know, I always reference the FAO report, Small Farms um, Will Feed the World. Mm-hmm. The FAO, with the, interna- the UN Agriculture Organization based in Rome, you know, the international authority studying the development of agriculture around the world, says actually small farms currently feed the world. Small farms are the only way to feed the world. You know, the majority of the world is fed currently by small farms. Although large-scale agriculture covers 70% of the arable surface of the earth, large-scale agriculture only provides 30% of the calories of the earth. So in, in a sense, these large acreages that we in the West and the U.S. Are, are accustomed to looking out upon are a waste of land. Right. They Not only do they waste the land and destroy the land through these unsustainable practices, degrade, degrading the underlying soil structure and life of the land, but they erode the capacity of that land um, over the and over the long term. But they're also less efficient. You know, that's the part that's it's right. really well, they're, they're less, what 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 I've observed is that they're less efficient in terms of yield Calories per acre. Per acre, yeah. They're more efficient in terms of dollars per unit of labor. Correct. So if well you said. want, yeah. So if you want to, uh, if if you think that it is. Uh, that human progress is a matter of liberating people from the degradation of having their hands touch soil and to bring uplift more and more people from connection to land into the world of data and technology, then modern industrial agriculture is a good thing because you only need 1% or less of the population to drive the air-conditioned tractor around and make the food. Well, and but, those guys who are doing that work now, those, you know, those mostly in their 60s and 70s white guys who are running tractors over five, six, seven, eight thousand thousand acres yeah. with one, two, three, four, five million dollars in equipment living in very modest houses mm-hmm. in debt up to the hilt, yeah. maximally attentive as they can be to that five, six, seven, you know, you'd only so many... Acres you can pay attention to, even with all the technology and right. the tractors they're driving over that land now are upsucking data about the angle, the yield, the moisture, the the seed count in the combine, mm-hmm. the curvature of the earth, um, soil compaction, fertility. So you're essentially right now sucking up data from those la- those farmers' mm-hmm. tractors, teaching the machines how to do that work. Right. That's what's happening right now. Right. So it's 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 dead end for those guys too. It's like it's not liberating those guys. Those guys are made miserable. Right. By that. But the rest of us in in this particular narrative, um, you know, can be abstracted from nature, from relationship to land, et cetera, et cetera. But if your vision of a more beautiful world includes maybe a little bit more contact with earth, soil, nature, life perhaps includes not 1% of the population involved in farming, but maybe 10% or 20%, maybe more if you include gardens. You know, if that is, if, if your vision of the future involves reconnection to all that we've separated from, and to boot, you can also grow more food, and you can heal the environment, and perhaps um, reverse catastrophic climate change, et cetera, et cetera, then that arithmetic of yield per unit labor 
really becomes irrelevant. Totally irrelevant. And plus the conditions of labor of these life-sustaining, generative, diverse, um, multi-trophic, cascading, you know, accelerating, mm-hmm. gener- like these highly generative farm systems. Um, it's not just, you know, let flat line lettuce in a field. Right. It's not you know? stoop labor. It's, it's not, not the... stoop labor. Yeah. There's and 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 in here, you know, as a, somebody who spent ten years studying and celebrating the young farmers movement, I can tell you there's way more young people excited to farm than are actually farming. There's way more of the general public excited to be outside than are actually outside. Yeah. And the systems, the model farms that are that have you know created these super diverse, labor intensive, um, farm systems have a waiting list of 300 people to come apprentice with them. Right. You know, because it's <clears throat> highly gratifying life. Yeah, it's not like, I mean, because that's the other... other. Uh, like, we ha- we cannot yet imagine the scale and beauty of what's possible mm. on this landscape. Yeah. Many of us. Well, some of us start imagining it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, like, the other criticism is, well, this is easy for you to say, Charles, but you've never experienced farm work. It's really hard. Thank goodness for the machines that have liberated us from it. But I'm like, well, that criticism fails on one ground because I have experienced it because my brother's a farmer. I worked on his farm like all summer. <laughs> but <laughs> also like that understanding of what farm labor is, is based on an industrial model with, where originally human beings were the industrial parts. And once you shift away from producing standardized food for the commodity markets and you're in these you know, what, what did you call them? Multi-trophic, like these mixed farms where so much is happening at once and so much is dependent on other processes. Like the the tasks that humans have to perform also become very diverse. Right. Well, if you think about the cradle of democracy, you know, and in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome, you think of these like high, like, like classical civilization emergent. Well, that was a profoundly diverse settled perennial based agriculture um if you track the literature that that the emergence of these conceptions of equality and participatory democracy arose from places in which human settlement and human activities were grounded in the praxis of land stewardship and that in the united states we culturally like unconsciously have still a highly colonial um outlook on farming we say oh you're a farmer how many acres what do you produce? Mm-hmm. The producerist identity inherent in a settlement, on land stolen, expropriation, exploitation, slaves, sailing ships, the movement of goods back mm-hmm. to the home empire. I mean, that is encoded in the way, you know, unconsciously, involuntarily, many of us are are experiencing kind of the climate of American agriculture. And so un- uncoiling that in our bodies, um, in the, the trauma that is held, you know, by the settlers and the and the dispossessed, like that's all in the story of what we're of what we have to uncoil. So I want to return now to the because um, originally, you know, I opened this with, I think I did at least, uh, <laughs> something about what to do with a billion dollars. Yeah, what to do with a billion dollars, or what to because when we were talking at breakfast, I was like, yeah, people want to. Some people are really getting that the best thing that we can do for this planet right now to make a generalization, is to heal land and water. And that that can be done not necessarily by just cordoning it off and leaving it untouched. I'd like to say it's not leave no trace, it's leave a beautiful trace. You know, it's not to 
remove ourselves from nature, but it's to become uh, positive participants in a mutual healing. So, so what I said to you at breakfast is like, well, too bad there's not really organizations to metabolize large amounts of money and to to bring them on a larger scale to the farmers who want to regenerate land. And you're like, well, actually, there's the agricultural trust. So agrarian trust. Agrarian trust. Yeah. yeah so. And we can metabolize millions of dollars. I'm I'm a co-founder and a board member um, of Agrarian Trust. And yes, I mean, emancipating that farmland into a heal a healing. Well, what's possible? Economy. Like what, what when we're talking about like for some people listening, it might, this might be a bit of an abstraction. Like, what does it look like to heal land? Like, well, what happens? Well, I, one of the things I hope we see much more of in the next 10, 15 years is large scale landscape allegory i.e. people like this ranch here who have taken the time and put in the work to restore this landscape back to its full and vital health, you know, to reinstate the native ecologies on the hill slopes, to, you know, get the streams back in health, get the wetlands back in health, get the soil um, through managed grazing back in health. And, you know, so that anybody who comes along can see with their own eyes and Mm -hmm. sense organoleptically um, the vitality of this land so that there's almost this yeah, just embodied lesson learned so directly from the humans. But what does it look like? Well, it means buying of land, putting it into the trust, starting an organic farm on it, and doing restoration around um, the edges of that. You know, creating a management plan for the farm that involves conservation planning, um, and then allowing those farmers to build and capitalize the diverse farm of their dreams without having the burden of $2 million of real estate. Right. And what I see, even in, in like more tangible terms, things like songbirds coming back that, you know, maybe your grandfather remembered being on the land, but have been gone for a long time, or springs that that have been dry for decades coming back to life again, streams that had been seasonal for decades now running all year round. And we have those stories. I mean, we in the, you know, we the community of people who study land restoration and who are fascinated by the work that it takes to resuscitate the ecological function of our productive landscapes, you know, can point to the stories around the world of people who have finessed and, you know, yeah, there's some engineering involved, you know, and there's sometimes there's some fencing and exclosures involved Mm -hmm. to put shade trees on the tops of the hill so the cows will sit there in the shade in the breeze nibbling and, um, you know, chewing their cud, urinating, moving that, that moving that fertility to the top of the ridgeline such that it then repercolates down and mm-hmm. begins to reinfuse, And then taking that water, instead of it going down the gully and eroding and making uh, and, and losing itself from the landscape, gently recontouring with little tiny swales, moving that and slowing that water down so it reabsorbs into the landscape and, and sinks back into the water table and so then all of a sudden you have way more water in the sponge you know and these are the practices that are possible right now only for billionaires you right. know or or people who run their equipment themselves you know and and have figured out you know how to make um a side living you know so there's uh there's all sort like the kind of scope of work that's possible and that has been done and that's been innovated and that needs to be replicated on millions of acres Yes. Um, yeah, this needs to be done on a vast scale. Yeah. I've seen some of these projects too, 
that and even it blows your mind. It blows your mind. I mean, <laughs> even on a small scale with not that much money, yeah. what people are capable of doing that benefits not only their land but all the surrounding yeah, land the too. Ponds, because, the hedges. Yeah. Because once once you restore the water table, then the trees and deep rooted grasses can can evapotranspire water much farther into the dry season, which reduces the susceptibility of the land to fire, which then in turn allows more more growth, more restoration to happen. It's oh. a virtuous circle. And don't forget the insects. Mm. That like the huge biomass of insects. And then the birds who eat them. And then mm-hmm. the, you know, just putting one little wire, just putting one little perch, you watch the accumulation of fertility through the visitation of birds. I mean the rice growers in California know this very well. They they benefit from the migratory bird poop. You know, the farmers of New Zealand know this very well. Their whole grazing system mm-hmm. is based on the mined bird poops from the Pacific Island birds. You know, the guano, right. the guano deposits. So, um, this is known. This is known by, you know, too few of us. But it's known. it is known what is possible. And I think accelerating the public appetite public familiarity, making more accessible and available and interpreting these kind of allegories of restoration of land health can incite so many more brains and cleverness, you know, and the distributed volition of life itself in all these places mm-hmm. to iterate and accelerate and, and die and make like dyn it's just dynamite. And you can see it here on this ranch, you know. Just yeah. like the work that they've done, the interventions that they've managed, you know, where do they fence, how do they graze, what natives do they plant, how do they, you know, stop with the lawn. <laughs> right. And this requires, this isn't something that you can apply as a formula, like to know which natives to plant, to know what the land might want to become in 20 years or 50 years. That might require studying the history of the land. Yeah, this is the life's work of very passionate and committed people. Right. And very passionate and committed people who are now in who are entering this movement in basically complete surrender. You know, we've had this group now of, of ministers and pastors mm-hmm. and interfaith landholders, and, you know, they're talking about surrender and spiritual formation and the ministry and, you know, uh, prophetic imagination, all this beautiful spiritual language. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I've been watching that for 10 years in the mm-hmm. bodies of these young farmers. You know, yeah. the, the humility to go into something that will never make you fame or, or mm-hmm. a very good living at all. And what I was going to also add to that is that because it requires this kind of close observation and this intimacy with land, it's not something that can scale up in a conventional sense. It's not something that you can say, okay, well, you know, that farmer with with almost no money is doing this on their particular ranch, mm-hmm. their particular land. So I'm a billionaire, so I'm going to do it on a million acres. Like the only way you could do that you cannot be intimate with a million acres. No. The only way you could do that would be to partner with partner many. Yeah. with many, many, many other people who come into intimate relationship. And so that's essentially what the agrarian trust is doing. It's, right. Well we because we are basically managing the leases and the relationships, making sure we have qualified applicants, making sure they have the support they need, that there's we have called the avuncular circle, which is their mm. kind of core support team who oversee the RFP process and the mm-hmm. business plan and the conservation plan. So that the whole, you know, so that you're essentially vetting the process by which these farmers have access to the commons, right? And providing the required um, technical assistance for the inevitable dramas that occur yeah. when you're dealing with the real world. 
because there is a limit to what one man or one woman can see and do on the land. You know, our consciousness bound up in the thousands and the myriad moments of, of interpreting what is the land saying to me now today? What what needs to happen here now? What the timing, the succession, um, you know, the interaction between the pest species and the bird species and the bobcats, you know, I mean, yeah. the thing is, it's the there's so much to see and do and observe and manipulate to bring this land back into song. And you can only do it on so many acres, you know, as one person. Yeah. So if you want to do it on millions of acres, which is what we need, then we need millions of people involved. And we have to create um, emancipatory structures that invite that ambition. So, I, I yeah, I've been kind of having my antenna out for something like the Agrarian Trust for a while now, uh, just because I see that just the importance of doing this kind of thing for planetary healing. Are there other organizations that, besides your own, that you also admire and feel like allyship with? Yeah, so um, there's lots of organizations who are doing relevant and incredible work to support these incoming generation of land stewards, to support, you know, agroforestry programs, to support, you know, biodiversity uh, research and, you know, organic seed breeding. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a whole sustainable ag junta of helpers who are providing infrastructure for small grains, you know, who are um, accelerating the businesses in, um, you know, value-added pickle making, you know, all of this whole sector that are here to help a regional diverse food system enact itself on the land. Um, you know, incubator projects, refugee farms, mm. you know, massive seed sovereignty networks. I mean, there's a whole bunch of NGO honey bunnies working hard <laughs> to make good things happen in sustainable yeah. agriculture, and we should definitely not fail to mention them. And there's also lots of regional land trusts, mm -hmm. you know, who've got lists of farms they want to buy and have done really great work tracking the territory and figuring out the best farm soil, you know, in the Connecticut River Valley and, the, you know, Kinnikinnick. Um, I mean, you know, wherever, whatever river valley you, you know you happen to affiliate with, there's probably a conservation group there who's already hard at work um, trying to protect nature and trying to install um, ecological agriculture. I think agrarian trust is slightly different in that our our central focus is regional food sovereignty, mm -hmm. and for most land trusts, their portfolio is in a minority of their portfolio is about enabling that kind of agriculture. Yeah. Um, although I think there's a trend more and more, especially on the front pages of the magazine, in that direction. Um, but still, you know, the, the, the critique is that a lot of the land that's in quote-unquote agricultural use, either conserved or not conserved, is just making hay for horses in some of the fancy neighborhoods where tax benefits are, are being accrued. Uh -huh. And that in those places where, you know, your proximity to, to markets that will pay for good food, I want to see people with 10, 20, year, 25 year leases. You know, like we were here gathering with these churches because it turns out the churches and the religious and faith groups own a lot of land and they are bequested land all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them are really interested to make opportunity on that land for sustainable agriculture, for pollinator gardens and sanctuary gardens, for biodiversity projects and community orchards, you know, to make an orchard that becomes an annual celebration for the Jewish traditions, for instance, mm -hmm. they're really motivated to do that work. 
you know, imagine if all of the land that was getting agricultural tax assessment, that's basically making hay for horses or, you know, just vista management, required a 10-year lease. Imagine how many bodies would able, be able to be growing food in, you know, in between those horse corrals around every fancy suburb in the country. You know, and that converse, these are the conversations about land reform that we're not having in this country. So I think, you know, we created Agrarian Trust as a, an actual legal entity, as a structure to hold land, but also to kind of open up a really radical conversation about... Right, you're kind of a model. Like, I mean, ultimately we do have to go to the much bigger questions of, of you know, how we... Um, how we interact. Our system of property yeah. in this country. But, you know, in the meantime, there's a lot of land that is... In play. Without, without, yeah, in play, even without that kind of structural reform. The land held by religious organizations, the land held by retiring, you know, elderly farmers, et cetera, et cetera. Elderly farmers' wives. Yeah. People who inherit it from their elderly farm family and who live in the city now. Right. And all the kids are like, what do we do with this land? Yep. Yep. There's so much land in play right now that we can get into sustainable agriculture. Like, and so many young people who want to go into farming and can't find the land. I mean, it's just such a natural connection to make. It's an immediate and urgent act. And, and one thing, I'll just maybe to finish, uh, and then I'll offer you one more comment too. One thing I like about it is that it isn't, okay, let's save the world. It's much more locally and tangibly oriented, yet paradoxically, that's the kind of thing that is going to save the world or save a world worth living in. The the orientation toward the local and the tangible in the living living planet view that I'm that I've you know, been working with in my in my book and stuff, that if that the health of the planet depends on the health of its organs and its tissues and its you know ecosystems, its soils, its waters, et cetera, et cetera. Like, this is the kind of thing <clears throat> you don't get credit for saving the world if all you're actually doing is restoring one piece of land, yet everybody has to be doing that to save the world. So it's not so glorious. However, at the same time, it's so much more tangible because you can actually fall in love with the place and see it coming back to life. And the glory is in the everyday. Mm. The glory isn't in some abstract notion or mathematical projection or right or how many tons of carbon this thing is going to sequester no the glory yeah. is in these dancing starlings and these mm -hmm. you know imagining fruit i mean here we are sitting as the fruit is falling around us yeah literally <laughs> literally we're getting pelted by olives here <laughs> and so that's a glory which is more intimate glory more immediate mm -hmm. glory and the glory that enables i mean at least in me daily joy you know Communion with creation, rapture, it, like awe, mm. and those feelings give you so much energy. I mean, compared to hauling your ass around the car <laughs> <laughs> all day, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's that's I think the part of it that it it can awaken so much daily joy for those who are participating, mm. and that the legacy that you leave, a valley, a valley restored, a river restored, a ranch restored compared to material wealth, a trust fund, a spend down foundation, I think also speaks speaks its own song. And it's it's a the bio you know, having it 
biological acceleration mm. I think can outpace capital capitalism in terms of the wealth that can be created all right thanks for taking the time thank you Charles this has been a new and ancient story with your host Charles Eisenstein I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.